We are going to um, uh, jump back into Genesis next week, uh, but today I wanted, as we come to the end of a year and um, begin a new year, I, th I think this is uh, generally a time of, and probably the most appropriate tr time for like serious uh, self uh, consideration. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always big on, on speaking directly to uh, the community and that I do believe that uh, the disciplines of the Christian life are best accomplished in the context of life together with others. Uh, but that doesn't mean that each one of us uh, don't have a part to play um, in regards to our relational consistency intimacy, not only with Christ, but with one another. Um, there's a, a word that maybe has become like a dirty word in, um, in some circles, which is sanctification. And, and the challenge always of a church that puts the gospel at the forefront um, is always making sure that, that, um, that grace uh, is the driving force for our Christian lives. That is, that we don't work our way toward God's approval we have God's approval in Jesus, and we work from that victory, not toward it. And so I'm a guy that tends to uh, be extremely leery of anything that creates what I call ladder theology um, for us as Christians, which is, what must I do to live a virtuous life? And it puts all the responsibility on us um, instead of understanding that the fundamental baseline for our Christian experience is that we are daily surrendering our lives to Christ who lives in us and through us, that the victory is His and that even our sanctification um, is a gift from Him as we surrender to Him. So for me, the focus has always been a relational focus. Uh, the real question is not what are you doing for Jesus? The real question is do you know Him? Um, because if you know Him, you will follow Him. And if you follow Him, you'll be doing what He does because you will be surrendered to Him and He will be working in and through your life. That doesn't mean it'll be with um, perfect uh, steps towards some sort of uh, holy perfection. Um, it means that God, in spite of our sin, in spite of our mixture, will work in us and through us. That's the gift of the gospel. Um, but what I want to focus in on today is a word that definitely forces us to ask the question of what part do I have to play in this? Um, because you cannot escape uh, the gospel of grace and the sovereignty of God in human history, um, but you also cannot escape the continual call from the lips of Jesus himself, and I would argue from Genesis all the way to Revelation, of God's call for us to respond. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus asks questions, who do you say that I am? Uh, Paul is consistently telling the church that we have to learn what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, I like the way that D.L. Moody um, put it, that salvation is a gold mine. We must learn to dig it out. So we can't escape human responsibility, but I want to be clear I'm not talking about working for something that can't be worked for. I'm talking about working out a gift that is already yours, okay? So let me just set that straight. Look how leery I am of giving you any kind of practical instruction. Um, in fact, I'm not gonna do it. I don't wanna do it, no. Uh, what we're gonna consider today is what I, would, uh, th what I think is an often misunderstood concept that people think of as something that you do at the beginning of your Christian faith. Um, and that is a word that is actually quite beautiful, quite central to the Christian faith, and that word is repentance. And I see repentance as something that is directly connected to and corresponds to our sanctification. Um, and the word, um, I want to just begin with this verse um, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, once Jesus, he's baptized, he begins his public ministry, and it says, from that time... Jesus began to preach and to say what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom has come and is with you because what makes the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is God is in the middle of it. And Jesus is simply saying, God has come down to you in a new way. I am here. We can't talk about the kingdom without talking about the king. And he's saying, Repent, that is, turn toward this kingdom, which is another way of saying, turn toward me. Um, come to me. 
is the great call of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary, all of you who are tired of trying to climb ladders, trying to prove your worth, trying to prove your lovability. Um, come to me. That's, that's going to wear you out. And he, but there's a call that, that a gift, in order for it to be a gift, must be freely given, is true. But a gift, in order for it to be a gift, also must be freely received. And I think that this is important for us to understand that the gift is, is yours. This is why I say I believe in a universal um, atonement. What I do not mean by that is universal salvation. What I mean by that is I believe that Jesus worked out salvation for all people, that he actually obtained salvation, but not all will say yes to his yes. And so that yes is an offer that must be received, but it's all God's gift. How do we respond? Well, the question is, is this just a one-time thing? Do I say yes to his yes, and now I never need to repent again? In other words, I'm turning from my kingdom to a new kingdom. Because repentance is essentially a change of mind. If that's the key of what repentance is, then what would you argue is the most important thing for us as people, as Christians, as followers of Christ? Well, as a guy now who has walked with the Lord since 1999 and has been leading this church for almost 15 years and has been in ministry for almost, I have been in ministry for 20 years, uh, I would simply say this. The easiest thing to do as Christians is to drift. Because <laughs> drifting takes no effort. Which means that I am not saved by my works, but when I let go to let God, uh, generally doesn't work that way. Because what it really is, it, what we're really called to do is to let go and then to cling to God with everything that is in you. In other words, God has given us the necessary tools, His Spirit, so that we can now, in a very fumbling, stumbling kind of way, begin to follow Jesus. And the thing is, is that we're like sheep who are easily distracted. We just, it's like shiny thing, shiny thing, shiny thing. And that's, and this is where repentance is not a one-time act. It is a perpetual act. Usually when people say, I'm having a dry season, I'm not feeling close to the Lord, there is something in their life that's generally drifted. Now, I would say that, yes, there are those unique times where God puts His servants in the shadow of His hand for the purpose of teaching us to truly live by faith. Um, but, but the shade of His hand um, is, is meant to shape us into His likeness. But I would argue that we often put ourselves out of... Uh, we, we tend to move away from Him um, because our natural default setting of the human heart is to continually put ourselves, our needs, our wants upon the throne of our hearts. So having said that, I would argue that repentance is the key to sanctification because re repentance is returning again and again to this reality that everything that needs to be done has been done in Christ. But reminding myself of that and surrendering to that actually is a tremendous amount of effort. <laughs> so... It's what Chesterton said. Christianity isn't tried and found wanting. It's not tried and found difficult. <laughs> or it's found difficult and not tried. And in other words, a lot of people walk away from their faith after the romance is over. Um, and I always have, have asked that question, what, what is it? And it's because it's the hardest thing we will ever do is surrender and receive. To turn back from the kingdom that we create for ourselves to the kingdom of God. So I want to walk us through these, what I would refer to as seven turns that I think we have to consistently, as we come to the end of the year, and I want this year to be a year where Door of Hope is marked by robust repentance, which means I want to see us move to maturity. Um, and we've always been a church that does really well on, on preaching the gospel and calling people to that initial act of faith, but what are we doing as believers to grow into maturity? Um, what does it mean to go deeper with Jesus? These are questions that we must ask ourselves. So the first term is this. It's a very simple thing. This isn't like a big psychology. So don't, if you're asking questions like, isn't this, isn't this all God's work? Listen, Jesus said very clearly, 
No one can come to me unless they are drawn. So I'm assuming God's work in your life. Um, I am simply focusing on how should we respond to those impulses, to those, the draws of the, the drawing of the Spirit. Um, because this is where I think Jesus has to speak to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wouldn't say that to the church unless it's possible for the church to shut him out. And I think that we can do that as individual members of the body is we can shut Jesus out of our lives. Um, and I think that that, and the one who is truly saved that shuts Jesus out usually are the most miserable human beings on earth because they know the truth and yet they are denying its power in their lives. I always say that you, you can tell someone that's saved that's living in rebellion and someone that just doesn't know Jesus. Because the person that doesn't know Jesus at all generally doesn't have that much of an issue with their sin. I know because I was once that guy and I thought it was quite fun, all of the things that I was doing until the wreckage of what I was doing caught up with me. So turn over in your mind, your life begins with why the 12-step program is such a good model for how churches should actually function, which is Christ has nothing to offer anyone that doesn't recognize their desperate need for him. When I say turn over in your mind, um, turn over in your mind your life, I would say it's direction and it's spirit. And what I mean by that is actually taking, examining, especially if you're someone here who doesn't know Jesus, you've never trusted in him, is the question of, of are you actually satisfied with who you are, where you are at, um, and do you recognize uh, the frustration of human existence? This is where I think the 12-step program, the reason it is so helpful and works so well is because it's driven by the first step, which is I need help. I need help. And all of us do need help, but we are, we are born into and a part of a society that says, just do it. All the power that you need lies in yourself. Uh, that you don't need anyone else to accomplish your dreams. I mean, everything preaches this sort of self-fulfillment, self-empowerment kind of message. The gospel, its hugest defense and even the 12-step programs, why they are so offensive to so many modern minds is because it actually denies that, that um, ideology and says, no, no, the, the real power of, hum, of the human experience is actually found in a dependence upon others to help us where we cannot help ourselves. But if you're constantly taught that you don't need any help and then you believe that lie, um, generally it doesn't take very long into life, sometimes it can take a half a lifetime to finally recognize that, oh, I'm not invincible. I, I'm not, I'm, I didn't, I'm not where I thought I would be. I haven't accomplished what I thought I would accomplish. Or even if I did, I'm not as happy about it as I thought I would be. All of the things that we make our gods generally will leave us disappointed and empty. This is why it is so disheartening for us when we see our celebrities take their own lives um, or the ruin of people who have made it all the way to the, the, the pinnacle of human achievement and then, they, and then we watch their lives implode. Why? Because they've got to the top of the mountain that we're all trying to get to the top of and they've looked back down at us of um, you know, normal broken folks and say, there's actually nothing up here. There's nothing up here. In fact, I didn't find the satisfaction. I made it further than you, and I'm still not happy. See, we just think we keep pursuing the lie because we never can get there. Some people get there and realize it was a lie, and then they try to tell us, and then we just think, well, if you just don't have the ability to appreciate it the way I would if I had what you had. That's generally what we That's the only reason we're really offended when celebrities kill themselves. It's not because we actually care. It's because we are, we are deeply offended by someone misusing or throwing away what we all so desperately believe that we deserve because we are a culture of entitlement and we're a culture of victimization i don't have that because i'm this or that but if i had it i would treat it differently no you wouldn't because none of those things what scripture declares again and again will make us happy so when we ask the question of what is what is the beginning step of repentance it's actually being willing to come into the light and to be exposed 
for what we are, which is broken, needy people. There needs to be a master decision, and that decision must be driven by coming into the light, which means getting honest before God and with yourself. I'm not the person that I think that I am or have been trying to be. Um, that's not an easy thing to do. We must refuse to defend anything in ourselves that is wrong. The beginning step of repentance is that we don't have the right to defend in ourselves things that are wrong. And when we actually come into the light, it doesn't take long for the light to reveal um, the things that are wrong in us. This is what Proverbs 15, 24 says, the ways of life winds upwards for the wise that he may turn away from hell below. So this is the beginning step. But obviously, turning over your life, that master decision, um, you have to ask the question, to what? And this is why, number two, as a Christian, what I'm called to preach is to preach Christ and Him crucified. And if you are in this church, even if you're not a Christian, you're here because you want to explore, does this Jesus have anything for me? And I would say, He has everything. Jesus plus anything else is nothing, actually. He is everything. And we have to, if the master decision is, I am coming into the light, I refuse to hide anymore, I need help, then that second stage of repentance is we must choose our master then. And if it's not Jesus, you have to ask, will whatever you're turning your life over to bring you the satisfaction, the hope, the fulfillment that you, because I think we all repent all the time. It's just we repent in the wrong direction. I think we often turn to new paths in order to try to fix some wrong direction we were on, but we just keep turning to a new wrong direction. I, is, I mean, isn't that true? That, this is why my friend David Zoll's book, which I, I always recommended, um, uh, Seculosity, was his emphasis on how religious we are. That uh, we have not become less religious, just the direction of our religion has changed. It's no longer vertical, it's, uh, it's horizontal. Um, and we have turned parenting into religion. We have turned our occupation into religion. We have turned pleasure into religion. We have turned, um, think, about, think about social media and all of the little fringe groups that become social media influencers. It's, it's almost always self-help stuff. It's like, like this workout program will change your life. This will bring you the fulfillment you want. Or this, you know, so you have these little, they're like little churches online all around this kind of way of thinking, way of life. You have your like CrossFit groups and you have your, you know, lifestyle groups. It's like these are, the, these are the new priests and prophetesses of the modern age. It's because we are extremely religious and we are continually turning toward roads that are just simply dead ends. Because if they don't lead us to something bigger than ourselves, they will always leave us feeling empty. And this is why I say turn to Christ, which is that simple call. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples when he calls them, he just says, follow me. And he doesn't say where he's going. As I've often said, it doesn't matter where he's going because what matters is who we are following. That is, who has control now of my life. If I've turned it over, who's in control? Let me say the flip side of that. You know, it's interesting that Paul, the Apostle Paul says, you know, do not be drunk with wine, which, is, um, which leads to like this debauchery. Um, but he says, be filled with the Spirit. Why does he use wine um, as an illustration and at the same time be talking about the Holy Spirit? And there's a reason for it. And the reason is, is because he's saying both of these things are influences. And I don't know about you, but if I lived a long time as, as a person of the world, uh, and I lived a long time uh, embracing um, ways of uh, allowing me to escape the challenges of existence, which was through drugs and alcohol. And if you have ever drank too much where you blacked out, and then people tell you about all these things that you did, and you have no memory of it, my, th my thoughts have always been, especially since I've become a Christian, I'm like, well, if it wasn't me, then who was in control? Exactly. 
Something was. <laughs> and maybe it was you, but it's not the you that you know because you did terrible things. Like I remember one night being so drunk with a friend that we pulled over, we driving, we pulled over in his car, I'm in my early 20s, and he pulls a stop sign out of, out of the sidewalk because it was loose and then throws it through the window of a downtown Seattle building. And then we get back in the car and then we wreck the car driving home. And then we just like stumbled back to his house and then when we woke up the day, next day, I was, I was actually not so drunk I didn't remember. I said, John, do you remember when I tried to stop you from doing this thing? He goes, what are you talking about? I would never do that. Well, somebody in your body did that, and it was crazy. <laughs> um, who is in control? This is the point of Paul's word. He's saying that there's, there, is, there are things that we can surrender to that take control of us. And I think we do that in a million ways that are less extreme, that don't even seem bad. Because the fact is, is that we often surrender to, we turn to things that are good things, but we do it at the expense of the best. So your job is a good thing. Children are a good thing. Taking care of your body, exercise are a good thing. It's when those things become the replacement of the best thing, which is a master decision means you have to decide who's going to be your master. So turning your life into the light means now you must ask, who shall be my master? And I would just simply say, turn to Jesus. I would simply say the words of John eleven twenty eight: the teacher has come and he is calling for you. Have you responded to him? No man is more loved or hated in human history. Nor man, no man has been talked about, written about more than Jesus in human history. And no man demands a decisive answer more fully than the Jesus of Scripture. He says, pick your master. He says, listen, you pick yourself, you're picking sin. And he says, whoever sins is a slave to sin, but whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. It gives us a good understanding of what sin is. It's not the little things you do wrong. It's about who you allow to be your master every day. It's about choosing to be your own God at the expense of Jesus. And don't think because you're a Christian you can't do that. I think Christians do it in ways that are actually far more subtle and far more damaging. That's why I always will say that Satan's greatest work in the world is not out there, it's in the church and it's in the pews of God's own people. Because we are easily fooled and we often, like Israel, uh, give ourselves over to the wrong lovers. Uh, and I think that this is uh, the way of fallen humanity and why it was necessary that God come down to us. So turn to Christ. Number three, if we have brought, come into the light, we have turned to Christ, the question is, is what do I do now that I am saying yes to Jesus? And this is what I would say we begin with, is that we turn and look at our own lives through His eyes. And we break decisively with everything that he cannot approve. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't find things to do that somehow are constantly... This, this is a, a, a game of push and pull. Um, but the reason I say this is that the, the question of it, it's, it's what, what Paul says. And this is, I want to be very clear here. Um, it says, examine yourselves. Um, Examination, self-examination is a dangerous game because it can quickly become the paralyzing act of self-analysis. And self-analysis um, is a part of our modern sickness and our over-intense um, over consideration of self as the center of the universe. Uh, this is why the great um, Scottish revivalist um, Robert Murray McShane, who died at 20, I think 27 years old, 28 years old, um, he once wrote, for every one look you take to Jesus, take, or every one look you take into your own heart, take 10 looks to Jesus. So it's the question of not just, this is, I mean, I have a list. I actually posted it once because I thought it was so funny. I found this from 1992, um, and it just shows what a broken young man I was, is in a moment of real despair, I was going through a serious heartbreak, 
and I was living in Seattle and I felt lost I, and, I, and I, I had this repentance moment where I turned and looked at my own life and I had a very honest examination of, that, of my life. And I, the, the title of, I still have it in my little journal, is uh, from that year. It just says, 71 things wrong with Josh White. And then I wrote out a list of 71 things wrong with me. And, and I read it to Darcy and she goes, hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, there were some things in the list that could be changed, like, you know, like number 24 was like, you know, doesn't eat enough, you know, now it could be eats too much. I mean, it's funny that the list is an ever-shifting list. It never really goes away. The issue wasn't that I created the list. It was good that I was willing to actually examine and say, hey, these are things that I can see tangibly that are fundamentally wrong with how I treat others, how I treat myself, how I live in this world. But the problem is, is I wasn't turning it over to anyone. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. So all it did was just, it became like a, became like, like the, I became like the poster child for like Gen X in the 90s, uh, which is, you know, that's the, I always joke that millennials embraced irony and sarcasm uh, under the guise of idealism. Um, Gen X just lived with, you know, I would say like, like, everything today is like tongue-in-cheek I'm like at least we hated ourselves uh, like we had real angst um, <laughs> like I, I kind of miss angst like I want to hear some angry you know we gave up emo music because we don't trust anything that's overly emotional uh, and uh, like or anything that's too sentimental uh, everything's kind of held at kind of arm's length but I, I was the generation that was fully embracing just self-hatred. Uh, that was like, we were the, the first products of the baby boomers, you know? So it's like all of the hopes that were uh, founded in the, in the baby boomer generation was like, yeah, that didn't work out for us. It just seemed like an age of excess. And now we, we hate ourselves. And, you know, it's, it all cycles around. The 90s is coming back with a vengeance. Um, like this sweater that my son just got me. It's literally called the moth sweater because it has intentional moth holes in it. <laughs> I promise you Kurt Cobain inspired the sweater. <laughs> so if we're willing to look at our lives, we have to actually ask then what are, what's the litmus test? What are we looking at them through? Because if we don't have Jesus to come into the light, honestly, will lead to total despair. But what Jesus invites us into is a life of freedom. And that freedom isn't conquering this or that bad habit. The freedom is, 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 is not trying to not do this anymore. The freedom is, is what can I let go of so I can know him more? You see, there's no reason to create a master list just so you can feel this, feel, you know, embrace your artistic melancholy disposition which is what I did in my 20s. It just fueled a bunch of sad songs, of course. Uh, no, uh, what we are supposed to do is when Jesus comes and brings us into the light, what, is so, what will undo you faster than anything else is the fact that on your worst day, he loves you. It's not, it's not his anger at our sin uh, that will break us. Uh, sin has been dealt with. What will break you is that he loves you in spite of it. And this is why I say one of the evidences that you know Christ um, is that you actually can't know Christ and walk with, that, with Christ without seeing your sin more and more clearly. It doesn't become less and less. It just has less and less power over you because you know how to quickly bring it to the only one who can set you free. So I don't feel like I sin less now that I've walked this long with the Lord. What I think I'm better at is quickly turning it over to Christ, giving him myself, and trusting his complete work of perfection, which weakens sin's power over me, which is why I push so hard on confession, because confession is the public act of saying, yeah, I am a broken person. Without Jesus, I'm lost. But it takes a tremendous amount of restraint and self-control to be willing to come out of the dark into the light in a public setting to admit that we're wrong, 
to admit that we're broken, to admit that our thoughts are not what they ought to be. But when we bring those to the foot of the cross, it's in the confession of those things, turning to Jesus, the decisive breaking of those things is that we are, instead of clinging to them in the dark, we are bringing them to the one who has already dealt with it in the light. So the break is driven by the relationship. But we do have to ask the question of that. I've always lived by this simple rule, and I haven't lived by it perfectly. But the question of, of can I meditate on Jesus while I'm doing this is a question that I think actually can be applied to anything in life. If someone's like, I'm not going to think about Jesus when I'm, you know, making love uh, to my spouse. I'm like, well, you don't have to make it weird. I'm just saying that, that even that is a spiritual gift and it has spiritual realities to it, which I think is a good thing for us in the modern world that has turned something as beautiful as sexual intimacy into something as, as uh, broken down into merely bodily acts. When we actually allow the spiritual back into it, it actually brings a beauty and a sacredness to it. And all of a sudden, the Christian ethic around sexuality makes a lot more sense. The question of, of this is that, that, that turning away from uh, and breaking decisively with this, the, the real question, and this is the funny thing, is that people ask me, like, how do you feel comfortable watching, you know, certain movies or, you know, engaging? I have this way of, of trying to make everything I do, everything, Everything that I read, everything that I listen to, and that, that I read probably more literature than I read theology at this point in my life. Uh, but all of it is meant to, I look for ways to make it usable in my desire to be a witness for Jesus in the world. And this is why I can get into a car, a cab in London and have a Polish cab driver and immediately engage with him. I'm like, oh, I love some... One of my favorite poets is from Poland. They're like, what, who? Like, it's Big Do Herbert. Oh, you know him. He's a national treasure. Make it serve. How, does, like, how do you know about that? Oh, I just love to read. What do you do? I'm a pastor. I thought you were a tattoo artist. <laughs> I either get that or I thought you were a barber or I thought you were just an aging musician. So, <laughs> you know, once in Arkansas, on tour, my band in a van at the gas station, I had these two kids come up to me with these thick, thick rural Arkansas accents, and they're like, they're like, you're in Maroon 5, aren't you? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> that just made me not want to ever do music again. <laughs> I'm like, but I promise you Maroon 5 would be in a bus and not in a van. They're like, she's like, I don't believe you. You're Maroon 5. They're in Maroon 5. I'm like, we're not. <laughs> they still didn't believe us. So it's one, the one time in my entire life uh, that somebody thought it was somebody and it wasn't even me. It's just, that's an existential crisis all in itself, that whole sentence. The question of, of, of how do I make things serve the kingdom, what I find is an incredible amount of freedom now is that when I actually keep Jesus at the center of my thoughts, like, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I don't fuss over the world that much because the question isn't, can I escape the world? Can I avoid everything that it throws at me and live some kind of weird Christian cloistered life that makes me unrelatable to all human beings? No, the, the, the fact is, is that I just don't, I choose to not take the world very seriously, which actually allows me to enjoy it probably more than many who live with this incredible division between the sacred and the secular is my question is paul says everything everything is available to me i have liberty for all things but not all things are beneficial so i think that's a big question and what i would argue if you're asking me like well what is what's the defining line should i ever watch a rated r film should i ever watch? i'm like man i don't know you're probably better off watching some rated r films than you are disney films uh, so, with the, if you don't think there's agendas in our children's cartoons these days, I mean, like, like, like are we fools? Uh, no, we, we can't, you can't create these black, these black and white lines like that. What you have to ask is, it's about what you, 
in Jesus because everyone is designed differently. Some people have more sensitive spirits. Some people are deeply affected by music. And with, like some people are like, I can only listen to worship music. Worship music, other than when I'm leading it, writing it or participating in it as this church, for me is a thing that actually there's nothing I wanna do less. I would rather listen, I'll, I'll listen to Black Sabbath while I write sermons. How do you feel about that? Um, so <laughs> I, I'm just saying like, everybody's different and we're so quick to say well if it's right for me it must be right for you no Jesus is the absolute but how each one of us is hardwired um, in in our pursuits if I told you how I feel close to Jesus I would never even put that on you because it's probably not it's like when I told the staff you got to read this book with me it's the most I never have felt closer to Jesus than reading this book by Karl Barth it's called dogmatics and outline and literally we got halfway through it and everyone's like, can we please not read this book? It's so boring and so dry. I don't even know how you felt close to Jesus. And then I'm like felt attacked. I'm like, maybe you guys aren't real Christians then. <laughs> uh, we, can, we can play that game, but that's just called selective sanctification. No, the, when I say turn and look at your life through his eyes, so the question is, 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 what is where is Jesus bringing conviction in your life? Where is he challenging you? Where is he asking you to surrender something to him? That's the question that we must ask. Number four, turn over to Christ yourself and all you have. You know, I always have said this, that when Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, that this is our, essentially our logical worship. This is our entrance into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and it's also our entrance into the spirit-filled life is that it's all hinged upon the word surrender and that submission of self to Christ it's not just the looking at the things of our lives with the eyes of Christ um, but it's the recognition that we can we can allow the spirit to do surgical work on certain areas of our lives, give up things that we shouldn't be doing, do things that we should be doing. Um, but what at the end of the day is most important because there's so much that you're doing that you don't even know you shouldn't be doing. And there's so much that you should be doing that you don't even know you should be doing. So how do we deal with all the, the things that we don't know? Because all you know is all there is. That's a, that is a psychological immovable fact all you know is all there is what we have to do then it's what I told my dad before he died when he got saved is he said I'm worried that this gospel hasn't stuck and I said why dad and I said I know why it's because you're still an alcoholic because you still smoke two packs a day which is the thing that's killing you and you think that Jesus isn't gonna save you until you give up those cigarettes and you stop, stop the, the drinking. And I'm like, honestly, Dad, you've crossed that line of no return, you are dying. And if you were to stop drinking today, it would kill you probably instantly. I don't think Jesus is that worried about your alcohol. I don't think he cares that much about your smoking. What I think he cares about is you. And what he wants is not you to give him this or that thing. He just wants you to give him yourself and allow him to be responsible for you. Let him work out in you what you need to change, what you need to do. But you're the thief on the cross, Dad. I feel like you're at the point in your life where you've, you've done so much damage to your body without a miraculous intervention or healing as a 69-year-old man whose internal organs are shutting down, uh, I would simply say, the best you can say to Jesus right now is yes and thank you. And I think that for us, all of us are in different places in life. Some of us have health and we have, Jesus saves us and we have a whole bunch of life ahead of us. It'd be a lot easier if he just saved us and took us home. I promise you. Because getting saved is the easiest thing ever. It's literally yes to his yes. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that he is risen from the dead shall be saved. No front-loading the gospel in this church. However, 
to say Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge exactly what I'm saying here. I am no longer Lord. <laughs> to say Jesus is Lord is saying my kingdom go and your kingdom come. Um, and to say Jesus is Lord is to simply say, Lord, I allow you to be responsible for me. And I would just simply ask you that question, have you done that? Because number five is this, is that turn to him in confidence and faith and believe that he receives you and that you receive him. Do we not understand that the supreme word of the Christian faith is receptivity? Will you receive the gift that is yours? Because a daily surrender to Christ is a daily reception of his proclamation over you that you are loved with an immovable love. I always say it's possible to die unsaved, but it is not possible to die unloved. If God so loved the world, I take the scripture at its face value. That word means more than world, it means the universe. And God loves you because it's his nature to do so. But the question is, is will we receive it? And I think that this is a great, um, a great litmus test. Because some people think like that's too simple. Is it that simple? Because I would argue that for most people, it is far easier to do something for someone else than it is to receive a gift from someone. In fact, we're even taught, uh, many of us grew up in homes where we were taught, never be a guest at someone's house without bringing something for them. That, that it's always a tip for a tat. It's always this idea that in order for me to receive from someone, I've got to also give them something in return. It's, it's this, it's this trade-off. Everything is built on contingency. I will if you. But that's not how the gospel works. And that is not easy for us. Because to receive help is to recognize that what? It goes back to point one, that we needed help. <laughs> that, we, that we're lost. That we are far more broken than we think. To turn to him in confidence is this why we are told to walk by faith and not by sight. Number six, turn and look at all of your human relationships and go into them with Christ. Repentance is not just a change of direction of your life, but it's a change of direction on how you actually go through life, how you live life. And when I say look at your human relationships, I'm not saying don't be unequally yoked. Scripture says that. And there's wisdom, obviously, in this idea of, of being overly committed or even the challenges of being married to someone that has a completely different worldview than you. But Paul is consistently reminding the church at the same time that we cannot go out of the world and that we are not to judge those outside of the church. So this is where I think we should interpret this when, it talks about, when I talk about turning in with Christ into our relationships is the question of, of how am I manifesting what it looks like to be surrendered to Jesus and how I live life amongst other people? Am I looking at now at people through the, through the eyes of Christ? Do I see people as a, someone who is made in the image of God and though that image is marred that they are loved and am I pushing into that belief? with everyone that I know. Because I think one of the most convicting things is that for many of us, we're taught now in this victimization culture, I just read this article so interesting in the Atlantic, of, it said more and more kids are cutting off their parents. And, and the article was all about this, the language of toxicity, I can't be in, you know, so a, a huge amount of the article was around kids that um, have rejected their parents' faith and their parents' faith is to them viewed as toxic because it challenges their lifestyle choices. Or it, and it also is a part of this new narrative that treats the older generations, uh, which I would be now, I'm midlife, so I guess that puts me in that, that club, is that they just don't get it. They're, you know, they're more primitive. They're, more, they're, not, they're, not, uh, they're not able to understand um, uh, where we're at in our, you know, in, in our movement toward, um, you know, real enlightenment. Because I feel like a lot of the conversation um, in the West right now is driven by a lot of new assumptions that rejects history, rejects authority, rejects, rejects uh, 
um, older generations. Um, and, it, and this is all part of, under the umbrella of, of the age of, of tolerance, uh, which means that we cannot be tolerant of anyone that challenges our definition of what it means to be tolerant, uh, which is a, a part of relativism and has deep impact upon our society. But, it, it, but it's very difficult for us to know how to turn into relationship. But this is where I get so freaked out is that this kind of mentality has infiltrated the church and we have Christians that sit in pews week after week that have refused to forgive their parents, their siblings, their friends for ways that they feel that they have been sinned against. And I think that if you are going to have an honest ability to turn into your relationships with Christ, that means turning into the relationships that you have cut off because you haven't asked the question probably, has Jesus cut them off? Because if the question is, is if Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? He says 70 times seven, which is an infinite amount of times. I mean, even if you were to just do that exact number, <laughs> that's a lot of times, far more times than most of us will give uh, to people that violate our trust over and over again or wound us deeply. And I get asked this question, how did you forgive your dad? One of the things that I did is I turned and looked at all my relationships through the lens of Christ, and what I recognized was the, was the absolute absence of a relationship with my father. And I also recognized the authority of Scripture that the first thing it says where there is blessing connected to a command, which is honor your mother and father, that your days may be long. So I'm like, this is telling me I'm going to die super young, essentially. <laughs> And so maybe at first it was a selfish decision to protect longevity, um, but, but what it moved toward, you know, it doesn't matter. Sometimes people are like, do you care if people come to the church in the early days to like meet their future spouse? I'm like, I don't really care what it takes to people's motivations. I, I'm not here to examine or question. I just think Jesus has the ability to take bad motivations and turn them into good things. <laughs> um, so with my dad, I began to move into that relationship and you know what my dad never did? He never did, ever. He even told me a year before he died, I will never apologize to you for how I raised you. And I said, Dad, you didn't raise me. Like, I literally didn't live with you. I don't even know what you're talking about because, like, Mom didn't let us see you. And he goes, gosh, when I call you, I want to feel better, not worse. And he hung up on me. And that was, what, that was the best I ever got. But my dad loved me, and my dad came from his own brokenness, and I have seen the ways that I have hurt people, and I know what I've been forgiven of. How can I not offer that same forgiveness to this man who is functioning in patterns of brokenness? My willingness to forgive that and to literally not even hold on to it actually freed me from the anger that I felt at being abandoned by my father. Um, and what I'm able to see is not, I don't, have to, I don't have to say it was right. I don't have to disown the hurt and harm that it caused me as a kid growing up without essentially adult supervision or male leadership. Uh, I don't have to deny any of that, but I also am not bound by the slavery that that can create in a broken psyche that only knows how to hold someone else responsible um, without the possibility of any kind of real forgiveness. This is what it means to turn into our relationships with Jesus, is that I know what I've been forgiven of, and I know what Jesus died for, and I can't, how could I hold anything over my dad? We're all monsters. All the only people in the kingdom are monsters that say yes to Jesus versus monsters that say no to him. So if that's reality, then I cannot withhold forgiveness. doesn't mean I have to be in some kind of intimacy with someone that has hurt me or is dangerous. People ask me that all the time. Should I enter into a relationship that's actually date? No, don't put yourself in danger. But the real question is, have you actually gone into the relationship with the eyes of Christ is one that we're, a lot of us aren't willing to ask because we have the ways that we um, create um, acceptance of bad decision-making uh, we have ways of justifying bad behavior um, to protect ourselves from doing any deep, painful work. And any of that, what I just talked about is painful work. 
Um, but I promise you the freedom that comes from being willing to enter into it, and especially when we do it with Jesus and let the gospel be at the center, is powerful. And finally, I just simply say turn to God each day. Every one of us are as close to Jesus as we choose to be. The reason that John laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the table was because it was available. And the question for you and I is when people come to me and say, I don't feel like I, um, I, I feel like I'm struggling to be a Christian. All I have to begin to, the first thing I ask is, what, tell me about your devotional life. What, like, do you give time to the living Christ every day? Like, do you, do you get up in the morning and do you spend some time in prayer? Do you spend some time in the Word? Do you ask the Lord, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want of me today? And usually the answer always comes down to this. Oh man, I haven't done that in a long time. Well, I wonder why you're feeling dry. And I meet with a couple and they're saying, I, I don't feel like I'm in love with my spouse anymore. The first question I ask them is, do you take time to know your spouse every day? And often it's like, no, we're, our schedules are too busy. We haven't, we're kind of like strangers in the house. I'm like, once again, the bottom line is this, is you're as close to someone as you choose to be. Um, and with Jesus, he is fully available. With your, your spouse, there's no promise. <laughs> but but, but what, even in the principle of human relationships, we only get out of our friendships what we put into them. And, and I think that this, is, this should play into how we relate to Jesus. If we don't make daily time for him, he's not going to seem that real to us. And his ways are not going to be our ways because we won't know them. And all you know is all there is. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what Jesus has said. That means that he doesn't just tell you what Jesus said, he brings to remembrance something that you have taken the time to put in your head. So if we aren't making time for Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if we don't feel close to him. All of these are facets of what it means to turn. So, have you turned over your mind and your life to this master question, who does my life belong to? And once you have made that decision to come into light, have you turned your life over to Jesus? Or have you turned your life over to some different master that's only going to lead you back to the darkness? Have you turned and looked through the, through the lens of Christ at everything that is in your life and asked the question, does it serve the kingdom? Have you turned over to Christ, not just this or that part of your life, but just your whole personhood? A daily act of submission. Have you turned to him in confidence and received from him all that he has for you? Because he wants to give you the gift and the greatest gift that God gives is himself. Have you turned and looked into the relationships all around you that you participate in and asked the question of how do I witness to the fact that Jesus is my master? And are you just simply turning to God every day? This is the path to sanctification, Dora Folk. So may repentance be a word that guides us this next year. Not as an ugly word, but as a beautiful word that the more we turn, the more it looks less like a change of direction and the more it will look like a dance. A spin, if you will. Like David twirling before the Lord. Let's just not do that naked, but we can do that. You can do that, I guess somewhere in Portland, <laughs> but, but not here. But this is what I want, repentance to be a word of beauty and hope, not of ugliness. And it, may it be anchored in the gospel of grace. Amen?